1934, a man walking along the shores of Lake Erie comes across the remains of a woman who had been brutally murdered and dismembered. Shocked, the man reports it to police who are unable to identify her, giving her the name the Lady of the Lake instead. What they didn't know yet was that this was just the beginning of a series of horrific murders that rocked the city of Cleveland. The killer, known only as the Cleveland Torso Murderer, or the Butcher of Kingsbury Run, is never apprehended, and many of his victims are never identified. This is their story. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This week, we will be joined by guest reader Dee Wallace. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. You rarely know what we're talking about, but I know. Wow. <laughs> I know. I came out wrong. <laughs> came out really wrong. <laughs> but... You do know the topic of today's podcast. I know because you've been tormenting me with it for about a week, but I do not have any previous knowledge of this case. I know. I gave a public reading last week, was it? Friday. Friday. And mentioned it, and I said it was torso-y, and someone in the audience was like, did you say torso-y? And I was like, yes. Yes, because you did say it. I did, and it is. I, yeah, sometimes I wonder what I signed up for with this. Yeah, today's one of those days. So this is one of the most enduring serial killer mysteries in the United States, but it probably doesn't have the same recognition as, say, the Zodiac Killer or even the Alphabet Killer. So while it's highly likely some of our listeners have heard about this, it's equally likely they haven't, and you hadn't, right? I haven't. Okay. But at the end... We will all be in the same place together, and yeah. I will not be alone in this one. Wow. And so today we're talking about the killer known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, who is also known as the Cleveland Torso Murderer. I don't like either of those names, like at all, at all. No. Can we start naming things gentler? Well, it is, you know, probably pretty accurate in this case, so... And it's unusual, though, for us to cover a story like this, but, you know, it is an enduring mystery, not just because we don't know who the killer was, but also we don't know a lot of who his victims were. Of the 11 to 13 murders committed between 1936 and 1938, only two have been solidly identified. And our conversation is going to include both men and women in this episode, which we don't typically do, but that's encompasses who his unidentified victims were and it's also unusual for a serial killer to necessarily target both i feel like we need to put some warnings on this episode because amy's already given me a glimpse of like what we're in for yeah so before we get much further i do have to caution that because of the nature of these crimes this episode does include more graphic descriptions of violence than our usual episodes if you're squeamish tune out Yes. So and we will see you next week. Exactly. And there's a lot here, so we're just going to jump into it. I'm going to focus a bit more on this first potential victim because the poem featured at the end is about her. In the morning hours of September 5th, 1934, Frank Legassi left his home in Beulah Park, which is part of Cleveland. 
Frank was just going and doing what he always did, which is looking for driftwood to use as firewood. And he usually walked along the southern shore of Lake Erie doing this before heading for work. In all accounts, it was a pretty miserable day, and it had been a series of miserable days with heavy cloud cover and minimal wind that was working to hold in the pollution from the nearby factories, which sounds really lovely. Mm. In fact, the Cleveland Press said if this continued, the city would become known as the Dark City, which is a phrase that really could be used for this whole period of history in the city and not just because of the weather. Is something terrible about to happen to Frank? Yeah, it's not. Poor Frank. So Frank, he's out looking for this firewood, and he hadn't gone all that far. And he'd gone to what was where East 156th Street ended, and that's a little bit towards the stone archway to Euclid Beach, which at the time was this 90-acre amusement park that took its inspiration from Coney Island. And it's there that Frank sees a tree trunk half buried in the sand. And because he's looking for burnable wood, he approaches to check it out. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh. Frank. So when he realizes that it's instead part of a human body. I knew it. What he's looking at is actually the lower half of a woman's torso down to her knees. And I don't know how long Frank analyzes this before he takes off, but her shoulders, head, arms, and lower portion of her legs and feet are not there. Okay. How's Frank dealing? He's not doing great, but he's decided he's not going to head home because his wife, Virginia, is pregnant and he really does not want to upset her. So he goes to a neighbor's house instead. He goes to a house owned by a man named Charles Armitage, and that's where he calls the police from. But it takes a while for the police to arrive, and he needs to get to work at the Dodd Company, where he works as a photostat operator. So this all just happened. Uh-huh. And now he's on his way to work. Yeah. Just yeah. an ordinary day out finding bit of human remains. Right. I mean, it just feels like one of those joke memes, you know, where it's like, no matter what happens, your employer still expects you at work. It's like that one of the dog holding the cup of coffee and just drinking it while like everything's on fire. Yes. 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 And really, like, Frank does have to tell his wife what's going on. And there's like a bit of their family lore here. But I guess Frank's wife, Virginia, does actually go into preterm labor just two days later. Stress? Stress, I think it's like a really, really gruesome situation. Back at where the body was found, investigators eventually do arrive and they take her remains to the Cuyahoga County morgue where the coroner Arthur J. Pierce presides. He knows from the start that having a body without a head or hands is going to complicate identification, making it virtually impossible to figure out who is in front of him at the morgue. What year is this again? This is like 1930... 1934-1934. So... This would be very difficult to do even now, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, stunningly difficult then. A lot of identifications, even during our lifetime, were done by fingerprints or teeth or by having someone recognize right. them. Like this would only be like a thing for like DNA right now. Right. Yeah. So now we have DNA and investigative genetic genealogy, which is helping. Mm -hmm. But even until recently, yeah, you're right. Not having any of this stuff would have been pretty difficult yeah this woman who everyone starts calling the lady of the lake does have one identifying feature she has an abdominal scar from a hysterectomy and it's believed this hysterectomy was done a year or more prior to her being found otherwise she's thought to be a white woman around 5 6 and about 115 to 125 pounds and the coroner thinks that she's maybe in her mid to late 30s 
When he moves on to identifying how long she's been deceased, he estimates she died around six to eight months prior. He doesn't think she was in the water that long, estimating that at closer to three to four months, but he also hypothesized that she might have been placed in containers because she's not as waterlogged hmm. as she might have been otherwise. So this coroner sounds like he really is doing a good job with what he has. Yeah, so he doesn't have much here, so he's really just trying to get as much information as possible. Now, obviously, one of the most startling features is, of course, that he only has part of her to examine. And this is the immediate cause for speculation about how and why she was only partially found that day. Someone starts suggesting that it's possible that the woman could have died of suicide and that subsequently her body was hit by a passing boat propeller. Mm. And the coroner appears, he shuts down this theory. He says that the torso was severed between the second and third lumbar vertebrae and that her lower legs were neatly separated at the knee joints. Yeah, this is all the... Yeah, not details. a boat propeller. Not a boat propeller. He says to do so cleanly, he thinks that this would have to be done by something sharper rather than like a dull boat propeller and reports that he said at some point that a surgical knife or at other points he says maybe a butcher's knife Mm -hmm. was used. Also, the placement of these cuts seems intentional to minimize interaction with bones in those locations, which he suggests would have taken some skill and knowledge of human anatomy to do. Whoever did this, mm -mm. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. we're only at the beginning. I don't like this. I know. But there's this like peculiar thing about the Lady of the Lake, and that's that her skin was hardened, almost being like a leathery texture as though she'd been coated in a chemical that was working as a preservative and this chemical had also worked to change her skin tone to a reddish color he took a sample and sent it out immediately to some locals more familiar with chemicals they determined it could be any number of things but suggested a form of calcium salts or something like calcium hypochlorite Eventually, they settle on a type of slaked lime and this leads Pierce the coroner to say in the press there are many persons who mistake slaked lime for quicklime and try to do away with bodies that way. So we think this was a mistake. We switched products. Right. So quicklime would have sped up the decomposition. Slaked lime would have been maybe used in accident and created preservative, basically. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, like, we don't really often think about coroners being investigative, but basically Pierce does go to work to try to figure out what had happened to this woman. One of his first theories is that this may be an anatomy student playing a prank, but he's assured that all the bodies that are worked on are cataloged and tracked, making that unlikely. If this would be a, like, not a really, like, funny prank. N no. 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 Another theory floated at this time was that her body could have been stolen from a grave which prompted a search of local cemeteries to see if that's a possibility. But there are no disturbed graves, so that's ruled out. Do you know that there is, like, family lore that my great-grandfather was a grave robber? I do not. Yes, and he would steal he would steal bodies and sell them to McGill, to the medical area students. We're going to have to dive into that at some point. Yes, I actually, I did a little research, and there was that happening at the time that he would have been a young man. Okay. So it's... Very likely. True. So not the case in this instance. So he was not involved. No. <laughs> he's, he's ruled out. He's ruled out. Yes. So the day after she's found, though, a man named Joseph Hedgeduck 
picks up the paper and is startled to learn of this body, but not for any of the reasons you might expect. Approximately two weeks before, Joseph, who worked as a handyman, was working at a lakeside estate when he spotted what looked like a vertebrae and part of a rib cage. Both of those still had some flesh attached. And nearby was a dead gull. Do we think the dead gull is part of whatever is happening here? Or is it a coincidence? We don't know yet, right? Okay. So do you know? I know. Okay, keep on. Okay. So he called the police, but Special Lake County Deputy Melvin Keener decides that these were just some sort of animal bones and asked Joseph to bury them in the location he found them alongside the shore. So when Joseph sits down and reads this paper and then thinks back to what he found on the shore, he knows it's something that needs to be investigated. Later that day, a team of detectives with Joseph head out in the rain to look for those bones. In the two weeks that have passed, there's been enough storms and waves washing up on the shore that he can no longer pinpoint the location. So they call it a day and head home. They should have listened to him. I know. In the first place. Yes. So the next day, they're back out. That's September 7th. This time, they're searching about three quarters of a mile west of North Perry Township Park. To put this in perspective, it looks like we're roughly 30 miles from where Lady of the Lake was found. Unlike the day before, this time they're able to find the shallow grave and remove the contents from the grave. These were then transported to Painesville to the acting coroner there, who assesses them and says that, yes, these are human remains and a gull. Except for the gull. Yeah. Yeah. Not long after, the other coroner, Pierce, arrives to see if these may match up with what is missing from the Lady of the Lake, and he says his partial ribcage and vertebrae are a match. He does discover, though, one notable difference between this part of the body and the part back at his office. Here, it's clear that a different type of instrument was used to remove her right arm. In fact, it cut through her shoulder blade. This, he thought, might have been from a saw. And they decide that it's possible the gold died from ingesting some lime. Oh, okay. Yeah. Poor girl. Poor girl. Despite having more of her body, the coroner was unable to clearly state what her cause of death might have been. I mean, murder. Right. It's murder, but not specifically how she initially died. Okay. All the while this is happening, the Lady of the Lake is making front page news. And this sort of media attention is driving other reports of body parts being seen in and around Lake Erie. I think it's safe to say that both Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River were not exactly the cleanest at this point in time. So really, a lot of what people were seeing could have been anything. But one of the more repeated stories is when a 14-year-old girl said that in the week before Labor Day, she was swimming in the lake and saw a hand waving to her in the water. Mm, okay. I mean, I don't ever go in the water. But she did what I would have done, which is she got out of the lake as quickly as possible and ran and told her dad. That's horrible. Yeah. That's okay. He went looking the next day and said he stepped on something along the lake. Later, he would tell the press, I'm sure it was a hand. He didn't want to gather it? No. Hmm. Hmm. And despite all this, they couldn't locate either her head or her arms or her hands, which meant they needed those to help with identification. They weren't even exactly certain where to look. The coroner here said, heavy storms this summer could have washed the body from almost any part of the lake, or it might have been thrown from a boat or dropped from an airplane. Really? I mean, that's what he said. How often do body parts get dropped from airplanes? I don't know. He was using his imagination. Here. I think we should do a Google search later. He still 
keeps trying though. Like he combs through the city's list of missing women. They ranged in age from 16 to 74 and he was specifically looking for women that went missing within the last six months or so because that was his target date for the time of death. There were apparently 31 women. None of them matched the description of the body, specifically the hysterectomy scar. That's a lot of women. Yeah. I mean, it, Cleveland was a major city. but okay. And so the Lady of the Lake story is like a lot of unidentified stories. She made it into the news, but when they weren't able to identify her and there really wasn't much else happening in the case, she drops out of the news cycle in about a week. On September 11th, less than a week after she was found, her body was buried in the Highland Park Cemetery in their potter's field. They weren't any closer to identifying her or her killer. And when a reporter asked if this was a perfect crime, one detective said, no, but so close to being perfect that we don't know what to do next. That doesn't sound very hopeful. No. Mm -mm. And so while she faded from the news, Cleveland did have someone new to feature on their front page. A few days after she was buried, the press wanted the people of Cleveland to know that Elliot Ness had arrived. Okay, I don't know who Elliot Ness is. I can tell you a little bit about Elliot Ness. So okay. at this point in his career, he's like a darling in the United States. There's a lot of lore surrounding him, but by this time he comes to Cleveland, he's already gained fame for heading up a law enforcement group that was known as the Untouchables, and they took down Al Capone in Chicago. Okay. So that's his big victory. So he's got these serious credentials to his name, even though he's only in his early 30s. And when he comes to Cleveland, he's there because he's going to become the city safety director. Now, his role was often at odds with law enforcement in the city because there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of clarity between what his role is versus the role of police. But he's there to handle crime in the city. Okay, so he heads a law enforcement group that's not necessarily the police? He has a position that's not necessarily in charge of the police. It's not clear where that fits in with them. Okay. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just go with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's what he said, too. <laughs> Probably. Right. And so one of the reasons, though, he's in Cleveland is that crime has become an issue. And that's largely because, like, if you have to think about Cleveland's history a little, Cleveland was once a city center in the United States, and it was a huge economic driver. But the Depression hit the city hard, causing massive amounts of unemployment. And this economic downfall is something that Cleveland is actually still coming back from today. And one of the places this economic collapse is felt most in the city of Cleveland is an area known as Kingsbury Run. This was once a large open area in the center of the city. And when Cleveland was in an upswing, it was like a place to gather, go out in nature, have a picnic. But during this time, it becomes a place for the economically disadvantaged to go. Eventually, what was called a shantytown developed here, and the businesses nearby catered to the folks that were forced to live here. Kingsbury Run is the place that most of this story is going to take place. Hence, the butcher of Kingsbury, Kingsbury Run. Which brings us to the afternoon of September 23rd, 1935. Two teen boys are playing catch at the top of what was known as Jackass Hill. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I didn't name it. That was what it was named. Fun. It was this massive 60-foot slope in the Kingsbury Run area. And predictably, the ball ends up down the hill. When one of the boys goes to get the ball, he has to wade through some brush. And there he encounters the body of a man without his head. So this one's not a torso, but... Well... Oh, okay. It's a... Yeah, hold on. 
Okay. <laughs> because at the same time, those boys are going down the hill. There's two other teenagers, teenage boys who are kind of watching this. They notice them playing catch. But as they're watching them, they spot a different body. Two bodies. Two bodies. This one is partway down the hill. The first boys manage to find some police officers who go to the location of the first body. They discover a white male laying on his side who was nude except for a pair of socks. And he was decapitated and emasculated. Okay. Of note, there's no blood on the scene indicating that it was likely he was murdered elsewhere. Okay. So one is just decapitated and the other one is a little bit more. Well, we've only, we found the one body. Oh, this is the one. Yeah. Other. Well, there's the two bodies, but they're on the scene for the one body. Okay. Yes. Yes. So when the other officers arrive, they quickly find that second body that okay. was partway down the hill. It's only about 30 feet away from the first. This one is another white male of stockier build than the first. And like the first, he'd also been decapitated and emasculated. Okay. There's some differences between them, though. One, the second body, it appears he died about a month before based on the state of his body, and also that his skin is red and had a leathery texture. Okay, so so that was not a lime mix-up on the Lady of the Lake. Right. This like, is a preference. Yeah, it, those two are... We are preserving, this. not dissolving. Right. And so, yeah, despite having this same coloring and texture of the skin, though, what is interesting is officers don't immediately connect this man's body to the Lady mm. of the Lake. And neither does the coroner when he starts examining him. But unlike the Lady of Lake, there's a lot more going on on this scene. First, they locate the head of the first man, which is buried with just the hair sticking out above the ground. Why? So it's clear that the killer wanted this head to be found. And the second man's head is also found this time about 70 feet from his body. This one is not buried. Okay. And then their genitals are found nearby. Oh. Okay. So yeah. all the parts have been found. Yeah. So are we going to find out who these men are? One. One. Okay. The scene really is cluttered compared to the Lady of the Lake, though there's some clothing nearby, the sizing of which seems to match up with the second man. It has blood on it. There's also some rope a railroad torch, and a bucket containing engine oil and blood. The autopsies don't begin until the next day, but even before Deputy Coroner Chamberlain starts, the first victim has already been identified as Edward Andresy through his fingerprints. Edward was a native of Cleveland and kind of a troublemaker, so he was well known in the area. He was often arrested for fighting or drinking or sometimes like major charges, like carrying a concealed weapon. Okay, not the best guy, but still does not deserve this at all. No. Like, one of the actually identifying features about him is he had, like, this mark on a on his forehead and it was from when his ex-wife hit him in the forehead with her shoe. Oh, no. Yeah. But when the coroner starts examining his body, he notices that his head had been severed in the mid-cervical region, which did fracture his vertebrae. But the edges of the skin were smooth, indicating that this was done with a relatively forceful but clean kind of instrument. They do discover rope burns on his wrists, which leads to the hypothesis that he could have been alive during this. Alive during what? Like, Deep. no. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. So now we know cause of death. Yes. 
I don't even know where this is going. Like, I, I just... And this guy was never caught? No. Okay. The coroner determines that he's been dead only about two to three days. This matches up with what the police discover when they interview those who know him. His family said that they last saw him on Thursday the 19th when he stopped by to see his brother, but his brother wasn't there. Edward left without saying where he was going. Edward was considered quite handsome and was often in the company of women, so it wasn't surprising to investigators that he was supposed to have a date that Sunday, but the woman he was going to go meet said he never appeared. Those reports help affirm the timeline for the coroner. The second man, the coroner determines that he was also decapitated in the mid-cervical region. The coroner thought that the reddening of the skin was because of some sort of acid application. Investigators comb through missing persons reports but can't find anyone matching him. They also asked people who knew Edward to see if these two were associated in some way, but that didn't help either. Their investigation seems, to me at least, to really head in one direction. It's possible and really likely, I would say, that Edward had, at the very least, sexual relationships with men as well as women. Though his ex-wife denies this, there's some evidence to support this. And unfortunately, it really looks like the police used this to harass gay men, pressing them for information. I mean, this is the 1930s, so of course the wife is going to deny this. Right. And of course the police are going to harass men that they think are gay. Right. So they just use this as an opportunity to harass men. Mm -hmm. And really beyond this, there's very few leads. Likely the day after Edward was found, his body was released to his family for burial. And two days later, the unidentified man was buried in a potter's field, just like the Lady of the Lake had been. These two murders are treated like an isolated incident, and even though the term serial killer wasn't broadly used at this time, there's not really any indication that authorities were concerned that this is what was happening. So we don't think it's like a, a problem yet. Right, and they haven't connected it to the Lady of the Lake. These are considered completely separate situations. So because there's like that kind of like thought that it might have something to do with gay men. Mm-hmm. On top of harassing gay men, do you think that we're just, like, not caring? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, you know, it's happening in this impoverished area of Cleveland. There's some theories that Edward, you know, was, like, maybe a, a mob hit of some sort. So they just weren't... So there could be, like, a million reasons where yeah, these guys would have had something happen to them. Right, so they kind of were like, who knows? Right. Yeah, and you can see the burials happened pretty quickly after as mm -hmm. well. But several months after this, on January 23rd, 1936, the next body is found. Investigating a barking dog, a woman left her home and went out into the frigid winter weather at around 11 a.m. She passed by some half-bushel baskets filled with something that she thought might be pork, and she told this to the owner of the White Front Market, Charles Page. When he went out to investigate, he found the baskets were actually full of body parts, specifically what would be later discovered to be the lower half of a white woman's torso, two thighs, a right arm, and hand. That is horrible. And this is also another example of a dog doing its job. Right. The dog had been barking most of the night, actually. Like the two men the year before... There were some items nearby, including some white cotton underwear and the November 19th, 1935 edition of the Cleveland News. These remains were taken to the coroner's office where fingerprints were taken. 
They identified her as Florence Palillo, a 40-something-year-old woman who was known in the area for her struggles with alcohol. She also, on occasion, seemed to work as a sex worker. We actually mentioned Florence briefly before in our episode about an unidentified Black woman, because unlike one of the victims we'll revisit shortly, as a white woman, Florence's story was covered more in the local papers. We'll be back in a moment. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Like those before her, Florence's body was in several parts. Unlike the Lady of the Lake, though, Florence's reproductive system had been removed by her killer. There are some debates about the finesse of the cuts to Florence's body, with one report saying the cuts were clean and another saying the cuts were crude. Now, the sort of narrative about these murders is that it takes another few months and bodies before anyone starts to figure out these murders are connected, but there is actually a Cleveland News article that runs on January 27th, four days after Florence is found, that reads, The speedy resolution of the identity of Mrs. Palilla recalled the unsolved torso murder of a woman, the dismembered pieces of whose body was washed ashore at the foot of East 156th Street early in September 1934. Police never were able to identify her. But despite this, it doesn't really necessarily seem that the police are connecting these murders just yet, and Florence's murder goes unsolved. So the news sees it, but the police don't. Right, and only in this, like, one instance is it said okay. like that. Yeah. That's so strange. So obviously, there must be some sort of conversation or connection happening, but it's just not reaching... The people it needs to reach. Right. <laughs> but the murders, they just keep happening. Several months after Florence was found, on June 5th, 1936, two boys spot a pair of pants under a tree. And hoping that there might be some cash in the pockets, they poke at the pants and a human head rolls out. When investigators arrive, they find more articles of clothing in the same place. 
That's not what they were expecting, was it? They were definitely shocked. Yeah, I was just thinking about all the people traumatized. Right. Not just the the murder victims, but like so many of these bodies are found by like young people. And I don't feel like counseling was a thing. No. It definitely was not. <laughs> so they transport the man's head to the coroners and they determine that he is a white male between 20 and 25 and that he had been dead for roughly 48 hours. Like the Lady of the Lake, the lack of fingerprints inhibited immediate identification. The next day, though, his body was discovered not far from the place his head was found. They were able to get fingerprints, but unlike Edward and Florence, they can't find a match. One of the key features of this victim was his six tattoos that investigators thought this would be a possible way to identify him. But that didn't help either. It did give him the nickname, though, the Tattooed Man. One of the actual surviving relics of this investigation is a death mask that they made of this man using plaster. They displayed this at the Great Lakes Exposition that year and the next, but even though thousands of people came to view it, it yielded no identification for this man. On July 22, 1936, another body was found. This time, a 17-year-old girl comes across the decapitated body of a white male near the rayon plant. The investigation into this body showed that the skin of this man was hardened and brownish in color, which sounds a lot to me like leathery and red. Mm-hmm. But they put his time of death as about two months prior to discovery, which actually places his murder between Florence and the tattooed man. This man had no usable fingerprints, so again, the avenue of identification is out. And despite the similarities between this murder and the tattoo man, police don't make the connection between the two. And then the killer strikes again. This time, the torso of a white male was found in a creek in Kingsbury Run on September 10th, 1936. By this point, investigators say firmly that these murders are connected, but specifically from Edward forward, so excluding the Lady of the Lake. So they are putting the other woman as part of this? Yes. Okay. And so nearby, police find some clothing, which is wrapped with the September 4th edition of the newspaper, The Plain Dealer. And again, the autopsy yields few clues. I won't detail all of the cuts that had been made to this man's body, but like some of the other bodies, this man's torso had been bisected. What? Yeah. Oh. I did not know that was happening. Yeah. Okay. And like Edward and John Doe one, he'd been emasculated. And like some of the others before, they're unable to locate his head or arms. And like the others, they're unable to identify him. So, I mean, this, this is a lot you're talking about. There are a lot of people here. Yeah. Yeah. So we are up to number seven next, which excludes the Lady of the Lake. Okay. So... It should be eight. Eight total. Because after this, John Doe, though there is another Jane Doe. So before this point, five men have been killed and two women, although most people still aren't, including the Lady of the Lake. On February 23rd, 1937, a man named Robert Smith is walking near Lake Erie. Robert is actually a neighbor of Frank Legacy, the man who found the Lady of the Lake. Robert notices something in the water, and he's struck by the realization that it is, in fact, a body, or rather, a part of a body. And yet again, police are there to take in the partial remains of a murder victim. This time, it's the 
upper torso, again without her head and arms. This white woman is thought to be in her mid-20s to mid-30s and weigh about 120 pounds. There was some debate whether or not this woman was murdered by the same killer, since some felt the wounds were different and showed hesitation marks that the others didn't necessarily have. But, like the others, they aren't able to identify her. Not to be gross, but it sounds like this guy was cutting them while they were alive. So, the hesitation marks? Yeah, so there's some debate about whether they were or not. I mean, they do think Edward was. We don't know about the others. Right. And that's why investigators are continuing to struggle, not just with who she might be, but who's committing these murders. And one of the popular beliefs at the time is that the killer must have a mental illness, and they use this to target anyone they encounter on the street that they identify as being unwell. So though they didn't identify the killer, it did mean a good number of people were institutionalized under the guise of looking for him. Okay, so let's just harass gay people. Yes. And institutionalize anyone who might have a mental illness. Yes. Okay, and clearly, yeah. 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 That brings us to who is known as victim number eight. So the next woman found is a woman we talked about in our episode on identified black women and missing white women syndrome. So to do sort of a recap for her, this woman becomes known as Jane Doe number 12 or victim eight. In this instance, on June 6, 1937, a teenage boy is going to observe some tugboats who are out dragging the water looking for the body of a sailor who had fallen overboard two days before. He was down by the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge when he saw something on the ground and quickly realized it was a human skull. When the police arrived, they found some of the remains of what was determined to be a black woman in a burlap sack covered in a white powder that was identified as lime used to quicken the decomposition process. So the other kind of lime. So we're using the other kind of lime, and this time it's a black woman instead of a white woman. So, right. And we really, we still do think it's the same killer, though? There was a lot of debate, okay. again, whether or not she is included because of that difference. So one of the main reasons this discovery, though, ties the woman to the murders is that she is missing her arms. It's also clear in the autopsy, though, that there were knife marks on the vertebrae indicating that there had been a purposeful decapitation. And like some of the other bodies, newspapers were included. In this case, newspapers from June 1936. Through their examination, the coroners determined that she was likely murdered approximately one year before, placing her murder in June 1936 as well. I'm not sure. Why do people do the newspaper thing? I've heard about this in other things, too. Yeah, I feel like he is leaving some sort of clue, but I'm not. Like, is it a date clue? Is it something else? I don't know. Oh. Yeah. And again, when they set out to identify her, this time they actually have a lead. There was a missing woman named Rose Wallace who disappeared on August 21st, 1936. And a lot of this matched up to Rose. There were similarities in height, as well as some matches to the dental work she had. But because Rose's dentist had died some years prior, those records could not be fully confirmed. There are people who push back on this identification, though. Rose went missing in August, and the newspapers date from June, which I find weird since it's not like newspapers disintegrate in two months. Right. And then, you know, they timed the death 
as happening in June, but as we know from our other episodes we've done and Laura Norton's book, Lay Them to Rest, dating time of death, even now, isn't always exact. And I'm guessing in the 1930s, this was less of a fine science, right? Right. And maybe he was actually using the newspapers then to mess with people on the dates. Like, who knows we what don't this know. person was up to, right? But since the identification couldn't be confirmed, this woman is still known as victim eight. But most likely Rose. I have a strong suspicion it is Rose. The next body was found on July 6th, exactly one month later. In two separate instances, men are walking near the Cuyahoga River and spot something in the water. It's the lower half of a male torso. Neither report this to police until nearly five hours later. And there's really some messy timelines here about who saw what other body parts and when those were reported. Regardless, this man's torso was pulled out from the water soon after, and about an hour later, they pulled out a right thigh, left thigh, left lower leg, and left upper arm, as well as the upper part of the man's torso. All same guy. Yeah. Unlike so many others, this part of his body was wrapped in newspapers, and this time placed inside a feed sack made of burlap. Inside as well is, bizarrely, a single silk stocking. Okay, the stocking is really weird, but we have burlap and Rose had burlap. Exactly. And newspapers, newspapers. Mm -hmm. By the next day, they locate two forearms complete with hands. This was highly unusual when compared to the other murders. This murder was also a bit outside of the others in that some of the man's organs were missing, including his heart. But despite these additional clues... Police are yet again unable to identify the man or his killer. The killer seems to be just like experimenting. Yeah, so like there are these subtle changes that are happening. When nine months pass without the discovery of another body, I'm sure the residents of Kingsbury Run and the broader Cleveland area thought that these murders were at an end. But on April 8th, 1938, there's the discovery of another body. This time, a white woman whose legs were spotted in the Cuyahoga River near a sewer outlet. Despite their searches, investigators are unable to locate more of the body until May 2nd, when a bridge captain reports seeing a human thigh in the river. Subsequently, they're able to locate a burlap sack that contains both halves of a torso, a thigh, and a left foot. There's also a scar on the torso indicating that she might have had a cesarean at some point. It's like just... So many body parts. Yeah. Again, from experience at this point, they know that one of the best ways towards identifying the woman is to locate her hands or her head. So they search the waters and shores regularly for these. An assistant harbor master told the Cleveland News, It doesn't take much to collect a crowd these days. If you just stand and look in the water, a lot of others will soon gather and look too. Do you blame them? No. No. I mean, I cannot imagine living in this area during this time. Right. Move. Everybody needs to move. <laughs> it's a depression. It, so nobody it's can. not safe. It's not. It is definitely not safe. And so that brings us to August 16th, 1938. What are considered broadly as the last of the murders? This time, it's two bodies, though. First, a white woman's body is found in what is described as a gully. This time, the parts of her body are wrapped in butcher paper and placed in two packages that are bound together. 
Unlike many of the other victims, her head is there as well. From this, they're able to see that she had blonde hair and a dental crown. Of course, finds like this drew massive attention from city residents, so after the police left the scene, some people returned to the area to look around. Okay. Well, I mean, good-meaning citizens. Well-meaning. Right. Now, what were the papers, newspapers putting out around this time? Were they starting to call him the butcher before he started using the butcher paper? Yeah, so the butcher yeah. paper, they think, might have been like a... A response? Like a ha-ha Okay, kind of I was thing. curious on yeah. that. Yeah. Because it is different than what had been used right. otherwise. But I'm just, I feel like it's like one of those things where he's like, he is messing with us directly right now. Right. And that's what they thought too at the time. Mm -hmm. So anyway, these three people, they go out to where this woman's body has been found. And when doing so, they there's strong odor, mm. which leads them to find human bones, including the ribs, pelvis, vertebrae, and skull. These would be attributed to victim number 12. The man was determined to be a white male between 30 to 40, and like the others, his head had been purposefully removed. I love how it's like specifically purposefully removed, as if accidental removal is like it just happens all the time. Well, I mean, in this case, you know, for instance, if we look at victim number eight, who, you know, was largely skeletonized, mm -hmm. sometimes like a head might not be attached, but through like environmental means. Okay, but I mean... Or animal interaction. I mean, there's like other reasons that a head might not be attached to the body, but they're noticing like knife marks and cut marks that indicate purposeful. Okay, I'm learning so much all the time. Like I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so neither of these two individuals were identified, leaving only Edward and Florence as the only two to be named. And certainly while there are other murders that share similarities committed in other areas of the country, these are the most frequently recognized as victims of the same person. We started with the Lady of the Lake, and it takes a while to include her on this list. In fact, some still don't, despite a lot of similarities. And when she is, they keep the victim numbering system they had established, which means instead of being referred to as the Lady of the Lake, she becomes victim number zero. And suddenly, the title of the poem we're going to listen to later is explained. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that leads us to the investigation. I haven't really delved too much into this investigation here, mostly because it yielded really very few real results. The Cleveland Torso Murder, or the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, was never apprehended. I do recommend a few books that were instrumental in creating this podcast that go more in-depth into the investigation process, including Elliot Ness, which will include our list of sources for our website, but they include Stash Hours, American Demon, Collins and Schwartz's Elliot Ness and the Mad Butcher, and Vidal's In the Wake of the Butcher. But to kind of sum up the investigation, there seems to be a split between the investigation that Elliot Ness was leading and the investigation that the police were leading. And even those investigations did not lead to the apprehension of the killer, nor the identification of many of the victims. I am acknowledging they tried, mm -hmm. but largely to me with close to 100 years of perspective, what I see is how this investigation was used to target already marginalized persons in the Kingsbury Run area. They particularly targeted the LGBT community, residents of color, particularly new immigrants, and those with mental illnesses. Even though the treatment of the bodies by the killer indicated skill with a knife, 
and likely an understanding of human anatomy, the prevailing thought was that he could be a butcher. That's likely how we got the nicknames Butcher of Kingsbury Run or the Mad Butcher. There was really a firm pushback on the notion that he could be someone with medical education and background. Why couldn't he be? It's really like this, like, it must be some uneducated person. So it has to be a butcher. It can't be like... A doctor. A doctor or a med student or something. Right. Because, like, they're really working in classism here. But we know historically that's not... Exactly. A so thing. With this, like, perspective, we know a lot. We do but, know, yeah. Yeah. And they should have known more then. I mean, they... Because, I mean, there was an entire reproductive system removed. Exactly. Do butchers... I mean, butchers do do that, but I mean, right. like, would they... I, it could be. Well, the coroner but. said in the beginning, hey... This looks like someone who has knowledge of human anatomy, right? Right. This harassment, though, of the people of Kingsbury Run culminates into the events that transpired just two days after victims 11 and 12 were found. Elliot Ness gathered together about 25 detectives and they assembled along the ridge above Kingsbury Run in the middle of the night. They then went systematically through what was essentially the shantytown, knocking on doors, and if the resident didn't answer breaking down the door. And then once most of the residents were placed under arrest, those residences were set on fire. So they burned down the shanty town. How do I not know about this? Yeah, it's a, a pretty terrible history. And like Elliot Ness, he later goes on to like make an excuse like, oh, you know, well, those people were safe because we took them away from the serial killer. And we put them in jail. And burn their house so they can't go back to it. Exactly. On August 26, the press ran an editorial that read, The net result of the director's raid seems to have been the wrecking of a few miserable huts and the confinement of the occupants, along with the jobless men seized in similar raids at the workhouse. And we said a week ago, we can see no justification for the jailing of jobless and penniless men and the wrecking of their miserable hovels without permitting them to collect their personal belongings. Okay. So, yeah, they did that. They did that. In the end, there really are only two main suspects, like maybe a third, but I think they were just harassing that guy too. One man was named Frank Dolzel, and you may be wondering why I'm saying his name when I typically don't for perpetrators, and that's largely because I feel like Frank was another victim in this. His arrest on August 24th, 1939, largely stemmed from the fact that he had lived with Florence and knew both Edward and Rose Wallace, who again, Rose might have been victim number eight. He ended up dying in the Cuyahoga County Jail in what was deemed death from suicide. There's some suggestion, though, that he could have been murdered in the jail by authorities. But either way, this arrest seems to me like a stretch. It must have seemed that way to others as well because he was posthumously exonerated. So it was basically just because he knew them? They didn't have any other... Yeah. So is he either a butcher or a doctor? No, he was just like this resident who just lived in the area. Hmm. The other suspect was one of Elliot Ness's primary suspects. This was actually a doctor who had been in World War I and had performed amputations. This doctor was married in 1927, but started drinking heavily not long after. This led to his admission into a local hospital where he was under observation for what was likely alcoholism. Not long after, 
His wife took their children and fled. Like, she changed their names, like, reverted to her maiden name, everything. She so went. she's scared of this guy. Yes. So do we think this is him? Well, Elliot Ness certainly thought he was a viable suspect. I mean, he had a medical office not far from Kingsbury Run. He also had that medical expertise. And sort of fitting with the prevailing thoughts at the time that had little understanding of addiction, his struggles with alcoholism also made him a primary target for Ness. Mm -hmm. At one point, Ness brought this man in for questioning, but brought him to a hotel room to do this. This was considered a, like, super secret meeting. Why a hotel room? Yeah, he wanted to do it, like, undercover and not call attention to what was happening. Part of this questioning involved calling in a polygraph expert to administer a polygraph test on him. Now, like, I have my hesitations about polygraphs in general, especially portable ones for interrogations held in hotel rooms, but this suspect failed two of them. Ultimately, though, no one wanted to pursue this suspect further. There's been speculation it's because the doctor's family had political ties, but whatever it was, the fact that no one was arrested left what many considered a black spot on Nessa's career. So he's a failure. Yeah, like, it definitely damaged his, like, kind of sterling reputation. Later, this man, this suspect, was hospitalized in a VA hospital in Chillicothe. His diagnosis there was likely schizoid personality disorder, and they also noted that he was addicted to drugs and alcohol. He also sent Ness postcards and letters until Ness's death. And these letters and postcards are used to solidify the belief that this man's guilty for many people. But if you consider what this man went through or would have gone through in that hotel room, like, it seems like a pretty dramatic ordeal. The notion that he would fixate on it later isn't exactly suspect to me. There's a lot of other things, of course, that are suspicious, but that just seems not necessarily out of the realm. So it could be, but it, could, it might not be. Yeah. It's just we don't know. Right. But some people think that some murders committed after 1938 were because of this killer. Others don't. But after 1930s, these sort of become more of a legend, and it becomes a story of how someone terrorized the city of Cleveland for a number of years without ever being caught. And what's lost really is that there are so many victims of this killer that have yet to be identified, and the Lady of the Lake is one of them, still waiting to get her name back. Do you really think that any of them are going to get their name back? You know, there have been investigative genetic genealogy cases from older remains. So it is entirely possible that if these remains are still available and there's usable DNA that it could still happen. But it seems unlikely unless there's a force behind it to like move that forward. We are now going to listen to Amy's poem, Victim Number Zero, read by Dee Wallace. Dee has over 250 film credits to her name and is one of the most prolific actresses in Hollywood. She has worked on five series and hundreds of commercials, as well as film credits in Ten, Cujo, The Frighteners, Critters, and as Mary in E.T. Miss Wallace is also a Clairaudient channel and has written six books on the art of self-creation, a children's book, and has just concluded her 560th segment of her live radio show, Conscious Creation. Victim number zero. Unidentified woman discovered September 5th, 1934 in Cleveland, Ohio. Kingsbury Run dyed the world yellow every morning. 
It was in the steam of the furnaces, the acid that laced the shore. We braced ourselves against it, created temples of cardboard and tin cans. The hot press of metal sheltered us from the wailing sky. Deep in the scar of earth, I searched for treasure. Broken bits of glass polished into stars, whole constellations tinned to the ground. There, in that corroded ravine, fish bloated, rolled on the dirt, waiting for the hungriest to pluck them up. By evening, those hungry had retreated far enough into the reeds so that when the man shambled up, it seemed we were alone. He held out his hand, and I took it. After, they'd say how the frame of his body turned into a gambrel to stretch me loosely. He'd scald me, burn me into ciders, cure my skin, commit me to the cold. There in the lake, the light changes. It blisters through the surface and hides angles of intersection. But I'll find them down in that water. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.